Our reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 23. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended to him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in, in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was in the, there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way that your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Those are the words of Leo Tolstoy in Anna Karenina, and nowhere do they ring more true than in the story of Joseph. Jacob's family, his favorite son, Joseph dreamed of greatness. Literally. 
And then he experienced the depths of betrayal as his brothers attacked him and stripped him of his coat of many colors and threw him into a pit and then sold him to slave traders and covered his clothes in goat's blood and showed it to their father as false evidence that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. These people needed therapy. This fall, we're doing a sermon series called Committed. And we're looking at God's commitment to one particular family, this unhappy family, to be the vehicle of blessing the earth. And we're also looking at this family's commitment, what it means for them to live as committed people. And so last week, there was the call of Abraham and God's commitment to him, promising that he'd give him children, land, you know, blessing. All, all, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him and his descendants. And this commitment came, these promises came, even as Abram was old. His wife was barren. And he was being called to be a wanderer, a landless person. And so the question then is, how is God going to keep these seemingly impossible promises to this family? How is God going to follow through on this commitment that he's making? What, what is that going to look like? And our passage today in Genesis 39 is one of the surprising answers to that question. This is what God keeping his promises to Abraham and his family looks like. Because through Joseph, we see Egypt being blessed. Even while Joseph is enslaved, falsely accused, and thrown into prison. And the structure of this passage, it's like a sandwich. So the bread of the sandwich is verses 1 through 6 and then 21 through 23 when we keep those in mind. Okay, that's our bread. And our meat is verses 7 through 20. And the bread, it sounds the same themes over and over again, right? That, that the Lord was with Joseph, that, that the Lord blessed Joseph, that everything Joseph touched turned to gold. He was charmed. He was touched. He could do no wrong. In the bread of our sandwich, we see Joseph living his dreams. If this is what living the promise of God looks like, you know, God's going to be with me, everything that happens to me, uh, everything I touch is going to be blessed, that people are going to trust me, I'll raise up. If that's what it looks like, sign me up. It's like uh, in, the, in the words of Chance the Rapper, you know, when the praises go up, the blessings come down. Praises go up, the blessings come down. And so these verses, the, 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 the bread verses of our sandwich, they show a life that is, con is, is confidently settled. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Okay. God will be faithful. God will get his way. God will keep his promises. And yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will feel no, fear no evil. Our cup runneth over, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's true. That's, that's what life looks like in the world of verses 1 through 6 and 21 through 23. It's a life that is confidently settled because God is our rock and, and, and we shall not be moved. But that's not all there is to life. Then there's verses 7 through 20, the, the meat of our sandwich, so to speak. And this is life, perhaps, probably as we experience it most frequently. 
And this is the truth where we see that life must be lived with great risk, great uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen to us. We don't know who will betray us, who will attempt to ensnare us, who will lie about us, who will tempt us, who will mistreat us, who will abuse us, and who will throw us away like a piece of trash. And the Bible is such a powerful and endearing book because it is true. Because it refuses to flatten human existence into the story of either everything being settled or or everything always being at risk. Both are true, and human life is encompassed by the entire sandwich of Genesis 39. And God's promises are true. God's commitments hold in both worlds. The confidently settled world, and even in the world marked by great risk. And so holding on to that that basic framework for our passage, we're going to look at at two different temptations that we see in Genesis 39 this morning. And, And that's the temptations of power, and we're going to spend most of our time on the temptations of power. But then there's also the temptation of despair. And we're going to look like what it... What does it mean for God to remain committed and and for us to remain committed in those circumstances? And so first, the temptations of power. Because at its heart, this is a story where we see power dynamics at play all everywhere, all over it. And Joseph, as a figure, he's really powerless in this situation. He's a slave. He's property. He's been sold and he's been brought down to Egypt. This is a story of Joseph's descent. His descent into Egypt. He's he's brought as this powerless slave into the heart of the most powerful kingdom and, and civilization of that day and age. I mean, Egypt was, you know, it couldn't get any better than than Egypt in terms of sophistication and military might. I mean, the, the monuments of that civilization remain to that day. And what's notable is what those monuments that the Egyptians built were for. These are mighty monuments for the dead. And so when you go down to Egypt, you're going to confront, you know, the most powerful kingdom which was obsessed with the most powerful force in the world, death. No one can escape death. But the Egyptians sure tried, at least to manage it well. And so Joseph comes to Egypt powerless, a slave, but he still carries with him this this promise of blessing, God's commitment to his family that through this family and God's relationship with them, there is going to be flourishing and abundant life everywhere. And so the story of Joseph in Egypt is the story of God's blessing in the midst of the curse. It's the story of a seed being planted in the darkness of the earth. Will it die? Or will it bring forth life? So not only is Joseph sold down to Egypt, but he's sold into the house of Potiphar, who uh, the text says was captain of the guard. He's a military man. You could even say that he was the commander-in-chief of the Egyptian armed forces. He's He's a powerful man. He's in charge of Egypt's killing machine, its army of chariots that were the unstoppable military force of the ancient Near East. 
So between the slave Joseph and the military man Potiphar and his wife, we see this contrast between true and false power. False power is the kind that we see in Potiphar's wife. And the only words that she ever speaks directly to Joseph, and it's three words in English, but it's two words in Hebrew, and it's lie with me. Lie with me. And they're a, 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 a command. I know we're in delicate company, but it's basically her command. Sex now. She's the mistress of the house. He's her slave. And even though he's been successful, he's been exalted in Potiphar's house, he's still a slave, and, and, and sneeringly she calls him a Hebrew. He's a foreigner. He has something that she wants. You know, in verse 6, where the story kind of turns, it says, oh, all these great things are happening for Joseph. And by the way, he was a really good-looking guy. He was easy on the eyes, right? So Potiphar's wife, you know, he's property. She sees something that she wants, and she uses her power to try to get it for herself. And so that's the hallmark of false power. It is, is seeking to get something to satisfy desire. False power is always self centered. It's always ego-driven. It's always hedonistic. False power asks, what do I want? And what can I do to meet my own needs? Because really, this isn't a story about sex. It's about power, though, though the two are often so closely intertwined that it's impossible to disentangle them. That's why there's, you know, the old jokes about the, the Hollywood casting couch. If you could control an actress's career, then you could use your power to get sex, right? It's as old as Genesis. So false power is self-centered. It's self-driven. And false power, another thing we see about it, is it doesn't ask, it grabs. That's what Potiphar's wife does. When Joseph won't give her what she wants, she just grasps after it and tries to take it by force. And the last thing we learn about false power in this passage is that it lives on and perpetuates lies. Telling lies over and over again and by making people who are less powerful accept those lies as the truth or live as if they are the truth when everyone knows that they're not. Making people live under lies and believe lies or act like they believe them is, is a very, very powerful tool. It's like the uh, green grocer in the essay by the great Czech dissident Václav Havel called The Power of the Powerless. And so he, writ he wrote this, you know, as he was living under a communist totalitarian regime, and he tells the story of a, a green grocer living in the Czech, uh, the Czech Republic and who in his window displays a sign that says, Workers of the World Unite. And he hangs that sign not because he agrees with that cause or as a sign of his solidarity, but as his sign of submission to a lie. A lie told and perpetuated by the powerful. And when she fails in her conquest, Potiphar's wife, she lies again and again, each time using the power of her words and her position to make the victim the villain, which results in an innocent man being cast once again into a pit. So false power uses lies to perpetuate injustice. 
So that's false power. It's, it's selfish, it takes, and it lies. But in contrast to that, here we have this powerless slave, Joseph, who rises to the head of Potiphar's household. And there's no question that Joseph did become powerful. In, in, in the beginning and the end of this passage, we see that, that he quickly rises in, in stature and responsibility, and, and he's completely trusted. In verse 5, he's the overseer of Potiphar's entire estate. You know, at this point, Joseph is like the CEO of a multi-million dollar company. And sometimes we can buy into this lie that power is bad or it's unspiritual and we shouldn't even, you know, think about such things. But power exists in this world. It, it just is a reality. And if Christians don't learn what real power is and how to use it well, then we're, we're going to leave it to the various other ideas that are out there about how you should use it and wield it. So if we look at scripture, we can see what real power is and how we should use it. And so whereas false power is self-centered, real power is other-centered, and even more than that, it's God-centered. Joseph uses his increasing power to bless, to bring prosperity to the entire household. And eventually we're going to see this prosperity, you know, the cup is going to runneth over, so that when there's this great famine in the ancient Near East, there's an abundance to bless others. And in his exchange with Potiphar's wife, you know, we see what Joseph is most worried about isn't saving his own skin, it's not even uh, not betraying his owner, it's his God. He says, how could I sin against God. So real power comes when we fear God and seek to please God and to live into God's purposes, which means being a blessing for the sake of others. And because Joseph is, is faithful in this situation, he rises to such a position of power that he's able to save his own family from famine. He's able to preserve the promise. And so real power, it's theocentric, not egocentric. It looks to God and God's purposes, not just getting whatever it is that we want for ourselves. And in talking about power, it's, it's easy to sort of stay in the abstract. You know, what, what is power anyways? It's, it's, it's an abstract thing. It's a force. But when I think of power, the ability to make stuff happen and make other people do what we want them to. One of the most concrete ways I see power playing itself out in our world, in our culture, is money. And the reason we know that money is powerful is because money is a taboo, right? I can go around and I can ask you, you know, how's your family? How's this person, you know, how's this person doing? How was your day? How was your week? How was your job? But it would be rude if I just went around and asked you, how much money do you make? How much money is in your bank account? You'd go, Dave, like, why are you asking me about that? That's private. That's inappropriate. It's powerful. It's this powerful taboo. And we know it's, it's powerful because it's taboo, but we also know it's powerful because we have such a hard time giving it away. You know, the Bible talks about tithing. Uh, the average American gives away nothing in a given year. But the average American Christian gives away two, between 2 and 3% of their after-tax income. And so you say, of course, people who are barely scraping by, they can't tithe, and I agree with that. But, but there's actually in the church, in the statistics, we see an inverse correlation between wealth and generosity. In the church, the less you have, the more you give. And I think that's where we see the power of money. The more you get, the more power it tends to exert 
over us. So if you want to understand power and how it works and how it looks in your life, look at how you feel about money, look at your relationship to it, look what you spend it on and what do you give it to. And your attitude, is it mine or God's? It's almost like a magical tool that we can get as this sort of spiritual health tool. So money is power and a false understanding of the power of money says it's mine. I'm going to use it to get whatever I want. But real power says this has all been gifted to me by God and so I want to use it to be generous and to bless others. The next thing we see about real power is that it comes not in grasping after what isn't yours, but in fleeing what is not right. This is the power of saying no. The power of self-control. False power says whatever you want, take it. Real power says whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is pure, pursue that. And whatever isn't, run away from it. Flee from evil. Many of the early church fathers, when they were commenting on this passage, and knowing that Joseph is a 17-year-old, say the fact that he fled from this situation, that he didn't give in to temptation. It's a bigger miracle than when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not consumed by the fiery furnace. I'm not kidding. You see that in a couple different ancient commentators. They go, wow, that's, that's nothing compared to this 17-year-old. And while he was stripped of his clothes, Joseph, he was never stripped of his character or his dignity or his integrity. It it was not Joseph who was exposed in this passage. It was Potiphar's wife. And so real power comes from a place of self-discipline and self-control. When we're in that place, we can use power and not be used by it. We can take up power and, and not be taken up by it. And lastly, we see in Joseph's story that real power is living from the truth that God is bigger than your circumstances, which segues lastly to the final thing I want to say, the final temptation that Joseph faces and has to overcome, and that is the temptation to despair. You think about Joseph's life. He's a father's favorite son, a dreamer. He had this incredible coat that marked him out, not just as the favorite, but this is the one who's basically, he's next in line to the family's wealth. He's it. He'd been tapped on the shoulder. So he's got a great future ahead. Then his brothers fake his death, sell him to slavery. Okay, that's bad, but you know what? He rises up to prominence in in Potiphar's household, so maybe things aren't going to be so bad after all. And then he's brought down again by lies, again stripped of his garments, and again he is thrown into a pit. Joseph is blessed. He shares that blessing with his master, and he still ends up in prison. His master's wife tries to coerce him into having sex with her, and he resists. He runs away. He does the right thing, and he ends up in prison. Isn't it supposed to be that if you do everything right, you get the blessing. That if you're faithful and you live with integrity, you will prosper. And the wicked, when they do the opposite, they're going to suffer. And the Bible doesn't blink from the fact that oftentimes doing the right thing is hard. In fact, most times doing the right thing is hard. It's costly. Way more costly than doing the easy thing. 
it results in suffering, but that doesn't make verses 1 through 6 or 21 through 23 any less true. The Bible isn't so much interested in the question of how could God allow this to happen, but, but rather it's the question, this happened, so now how is God present in this situation? How is God going to use it, and what are you going to do? Are you going to give up? We're going to keep giving that situation up to him. Real power comes when we believe that God is bigger than whatever it is we're suffering through. And when we understand that God can use what seems evil to achieve good. Real power comes when we give control of our circumstances over to God and we don't let our circumstances have total power over us. And that's easy so easy to say. Circumstances can get tough. And Joseph's, you know, it's a Bible story, so of course it, it has a happy ending. But I don't know that it does. It has a good ending for sure. But I don't know that for Joseph it's necessarily happy at all. But what we can say is that our story isn't written. We don't know how it's going to end, but what we do know is that we, if we live faithfully, regardless of what is happening around us, God will use that to bless the world. God's the one who writes the end of our story, and it will be good. And I close with these beautiful words from uh, the late 17th century English minister and commentator on the whole Bible, Matthew Henry. And as he's looking at this passage, he says, Let us not forget through Joseph to look unto Jesus who suffered being tempted, yet without sin, who was slandered, persecuted, and imprisoned, but without cause, who by the cross ascended to the throne. May we be enabled to follow the same path in submitting and in suffering to the same place of glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.